Our first reading this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and can be found on page 1174 of the Church Bibles. It's Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's objects of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, which can be found on page 987, 987 of the Church Bibles. It's Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace, doing nothing. He told them, You also, go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you what is right. So they went. He went out again in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing around here all day, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. 
Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Should we just pray as we sit? Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us to understand this parable and not only understand it, but to live it in your name. Amen. Uh, Would you have that uh, Bible passage open in front of you? Um, It's on page 987. And just to say there is an outline of this uh, sermon at the back of the service sheet, and it actually goes over the parade. Uh, I have unusually four points today, uh, but some of them are quite brief, so uh, you can follow there. Well, it's not fair. It is not fair. Now, looking at some parents, I know that cry goes up in many a family. You know, injustice is perceived, and children are very quick to say it is not fair. Now, that may be the reaction of some of the grown-ups today as we read this passage. It's not fair. The parable of the workers of the vineyard, as it was read so well by Andrew. How can it be fair when those who only worked for one hour were paid the same as those who worked all day and who had, rather movingly described in verse 12, borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? But our understanding and reaction is completely mistaken. So we need to understand, first of all, the context of this parable. Jesus has just before telling this parable had an encounter with a rich young ruler in chapter 19 who asked a question, verse 16, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And the answer in his case was, go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the implication was that when faced with a choice, his worship of money and possessions and his worship of God, it was the possessions and money which he prioritized. And then Jesus said to him, to the disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because it is so easy to worship possessions and things and money and not God. So good, so far, so far, so good. I wonder if you've pondered, though, on what we're told next. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, verse 25, who then can be saved? Astonished. Why astonished? They were astonished because Jesus had turned upside down contemporary thinking, which was that if you were wealthy and successful, you had a Bentley in Chester Square, you had a flat in Chester Square, and and you had your three houses in the Bahamas, Uh, Monte Carlo and the Highlands. It was surely a sign of God's approval and blessing. So if the rich can't be saved and won't enjoy being in God's kingdom, verse 24, who can? 
And then this leads Peter to discuss the issue of rewards, verses 27 to 29 of chapter 19. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? He assumes that God is no one's debtor, but loyal service does not necessarily guarantee a greater reward simply because the disciples were the pioneer followers of Jesus. You see, God doesn't operate like a Tesco loyalty club card. The more you spend, the more you get back in return. The greater your loyalty to Tesco, the more rewards you receive. The rewards God gives are not calculated like that at all. But because we look at things from a human perspective, we make the mistake of concluding that there's unfairness in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But those who the world judges first, like the rich young man, could actually, in God's judgment, be last. And those the world considers last, like the disciples, in God's eyes, would be judged first. So, secondly, what is the principle on which God operates? And the answer comes in this parable that Jesus tells the disciples. Now, the story would have had a powerful resonance because it was an everyday story of country folk. That's the old strapline of the BBC program, The Archers. It's an everyday story of country folk. The grape harvest was a significant part of local agriculture, it was vital to gather the grapes immediately when ready before the storms or the rain damaged them, and you needed lots of labor as a result. Day laborers would stand in the marketplace showing they were available for work, just as they did in this country in the 18th and 19th centuries in market towns in the countryside. The daily wage, the hours of employment, the payment at the end of the day were familiar details in daily life. But, of course, the parable is a reversal of what might be expected, for it demonstrated the principles on which God receives people into his kingdom. Michael Green, in his commentary, very helpfully sets out three surprises of this upside-down kingdom. Here's the first one. The employer really cares for his employees, He personally goes out repeatedly to seek workers. He knows that no work means no pay. No pay means no money for food, and no food means hunger. Employment is vital for living, and he wants to help by giving work and pay. Here's the second surprise. He pays, as was the custom at the end of the day, starting with the last arrivals in the vineyard, but he pays the same Uh, wage to all. Even though the last workers only worked one hour, they didn't receive less than the others. Surely we can agree that it was amazingly generous of the vineyard owner. Wow, I'd like to work for him, wouldn't you? Here's the third surprise. When this generosity is questioned, verses 11 and 12, Jesus replies using the word friend. Now, when this is used in two other examples in the gospel, Jesus is addressing someone who is entirely wrong. The most glaring and sad example is when Judas comes with soldiers to hand Jesus over. Jesus calls him friend. Here, too, the speaker is in the wrong. 
There had, after all, been an agreement, one denarius for a day's work, verse 2. So if Jesus paid him more, then he'd be breaking this agreement, freely entered and completely fulfilled, verse 13. Having done what he said he would, the employer has the right to show amazing generosity should he choose to do so. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. You see, God's amazing grace, his undeserved love, reaches out to all. We are all equally undeserving recipients of his grace. For we are all in the same position before God, whoever we are. So thirdly, what was the point of the parable then? What was its implication when it was first told? Surely it is that God has no favorites. All are equal. He is the ultimate equal opportunity employer. Fishermen, tax collectors, whoever you are, you are eligible to be a member of the kingdom of God. No one could say they'd earned the right to be members of the kingdom by their own efforts. So at a stroke, there is no place for personal pride or jealousy if entry into the kingdom of God is dependent on his amazing, undeserved generosity. Now, the parable would have struck home to a number and made them rather uncomfortable. For example, the Pharisees. They were members of a spiritual elite whose membership was restricted to a very fixed number. And they looked down on ordinary people because of their important status and their religious respectability. They would certainly believe that they deserved to be honored by God. Jews in general might feel threatened by this principle of general generosity. They would have felt entitled to God's approval because of their nationality and a careful obedience to the law over the centuries. The disciples clearly could also feel a bit put out that their sacrificial loyalty would not automatically earn them enhanced privileges, rather like debenture holders of special seats at Wimbledon or the Albert Hall. You know those special seats you get if you have that special debenture. No, even though they'd left everything to follow Jesus, verse 27 they were treated as the same. What will there be for us, says Peter, in a plaintive cry? And perhaps, too, as this gospel appeared in the period of the early church, addressed largely to a Jewish church, it may have challenged certain assumptions. They might have thought long-standing members of the church had more rights than new believers coming in who might want to make changes, some of them even becoming leaders. To all these groups and individuals, the message of the parable was the same. Entry into the kingdom of God does not depend on any merit of ours. It depends completely on the unmerited favor of the only one who could be called good. As Jesus pointed out to the rich young man, there is only one who is good. Any goodness that might be produced in our lives will be as a response of gratitude to God's amazingly generous love towards us. 
The Apostle Paul summed it up very succinctly in his letter to the Ephesians. We had it read as our first reading. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one could boast. Wouldn't you think it's strange at Christmas as the present is handed over and you said, well, I've earned this. I deserve this present. Actually, I'm not sure it's good enough for me. A gift is never earned. It is freely, lovingly given. For we are God's workmanship, goes on Paul, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's got work for Christians to do. He's got good works for you to do, if you're a follower of his. Are you doing them? Rescued by God's grace, which is his gift, that means there's nothing for us to boast about. We've been designed by God through our relationship with Jesus to do good works we would not otherwise have done on our own. So Paul emphatically underlines that the idea of personal merit and reward expressed by Peter is entirely alien to the kingdom of God. Peter, you're the same as everyone else. And of course, this is seen most vividly and movingly in the penitent thief on the cross alongside Jesus. He faces up to his responsibility for his serious crime. He recognizes that he will soon face God's judgment. Don't you fear God, he says to the other thief. Isn't that a word for today? We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. And the thief reaches out to Jesus in a humble act of faith and trust with nothing to offer him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Humanly speaking, we could say something like, well, deathbed conversions are all very well. How do you know it's genuine? Or he should have done things in his life to show he deserved to be in God's kingdom. What we do know is that Jesus responded to this last-minute expression of faith in him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, the thief knew he had no personal merit. Quite the opposite. He never gave rewards a thought except what he truly deserved. But his humble trust was met by God's amazingly generous mercy and love. Well, that was the point then of the parable, my final point. What is the point of the parable to you and me in the 21st century living in central London? Surely it's exactly the same as I've set out before, and it's equally challenging in the 21st century, for we normally believe that in life you get what you deserve. So we rather foolishly think that God will operate on the same principle. Now, when I was a small boy at a boarding school in Oxford, aged 8 to 13, if you did a good piece of academic work, you got what was called a show-up for good. And you went to the headmaster's study, and he had a large tin of Quality Street sweets. 
and you were entitled for one sharp for good, for one sweet. Now, of course, you had to work which out your favourite was, and so uh, mine was the caramel. You see, God doesn't operate like that. We can't say, look at my show-ups for good. Good behavior does not earn us the right to God's kingdom. The Corinthian Christians were in danger, too, of becoming arrogant because they made the same mistake in their thinking. They had had significant spiritual experiences which they felt entitled them to God's approval. And so Paul has to remind them, 1 Corinthians 1, what they were like when God first called them into relationship with him, and he pulls no punches. They weren't, frankly, the sort of people the world would notice. They weren't influential, they weren't of noble birth, and frankly, they weren't noted for their wisdom. Well, that's telling them, isn't it? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why did God choose to do that? Paul tells us, so that no one may boast before him. Whatever the Corinthians had become was entirely due to what God in Christ Jesus had done in them. So logically, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yet again, there's that upside-downness of the way God goes about things. You see, God doesn't function on purely limited human terms. That's why so many who think they are first will be last, and many who believe they are last will be first. And there's even a very real danger for long-standing followers of Jesus, who may indeed have worked very hard for the Lord over the years, that they could fall into making the same mistake through thinking that they too have earned God's favor and deserve to be rewarded by him because they have worked so hard for so long. We have fundamentally misunderstood God's character and nature if we think that. For the parable tells us loud and clear what God is really like. In the parable, no one receives less than they deserve, but some receive far more. No one receives less than they deserve, some receive far more than they deserve. You see, God's generosity transcends human ideas of fairness. That's why this parable is upsetting. R.T. France, in his commentary, wrote this, it's a measure of our failure to share God's values that we feel a natural sympathy with the complaint of verse 12. They've only worked one hour. However much we accept the cool logic of verses 13 to 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And France quotes R.H. Stein, and he wrote this very perceptively in his book on the parables. Listen to this. It is frightening to realize that our identification with the first workers, and so with the opponents of Jesus, reveals how loveless and unmerciful we basically are. And he continues, we may be more under law in our thinking and less under grace than we realize. 
you see, God is more merciful. His grace is deeper and more wonderful than we can ever fully understand. So how can we avoid that danger of being more under law than under grace? I put just a few suggestions in the sermon notes at the back. They all start with R. Reflect on the reality of God's amazing grace. Read over this parable again. Note why you're upset. God's amazing love and generosity to you over the years. Recognize that you have contributed nothing to deserve it. As you come forward to take the bread and the wine, receive God's grace afresh today and respond with a deep sense of gratitude and be ready to do those good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. For in that way, we will demonstrate that we fully grasp the significance of the parable of the workers in the vineyard and that we're seeking to live under God's amazing grace. Let us pray. Heavenly the Father, this parable upsets us. It doesn't fit with our way of thinking. But we ask your forgiveness because your grace, your mercy is so much greater than we can possibly fully understand. We can get just an indication of it, Lord, as we take the bread and the wine this morning. Help us to reflect to recognize, to receive, and to respond today and every day. Amen.